Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to what? Trust him more. Amen? I guess people said amen. Thank you, Amy. For those of you who have little ones through grade four, you can be have them dismissed to the foyer right now for Children's Church, or you'd like to keep them with you, you can do that as well. It's a joy to be back in the Word together today, and it is a joy to be together today, is it not? Part of uh, the joy of the fellowship is the things that we look forward to in the future, where it'll be uninterrupted fellowship and uninterrupted worship, opportunities to enjoy all that the Lord has done. I'd like us, if we would, and this is uh, a little departure from normal, there's a young man, his name is Preston Pfaff. He is 12 years old. He is currently at, in, uh, at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and he's having exploratory surgery. He has a systemic infection from uh, appendicitis, which went undiagnosed for quite a long time. And he is in very serious conditions, in critical condition right now, and they're trying to find the source of the infection where they can treat it. So would you pray with me for him, his family, just let us know that. He actually just started the surgery just now, so it'd be great to go before the throne. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to come and worship you and really to jo- the joy of having our children around us and uh, having health. But we know that uh, sometimes you take us through deep waters and the parents uh, now are going through it, Mr. and Mrs. Pfaff with Preston. Lord, first of all, we pray for uh, that their faith will be strengthened, that the other children will be drawn toward you, that they'll trust you more as we just saw in the song and sang a few minutes ago. It's easy to say that when things are good, but Lord, I pray that you'll draw them to you as only you can do that and bring them peace that surpasses their understanding of the situation. And then I pray for Preston that you might help his body, uh, strengthen his body to heal, that you'll give the doctors wisdom who are uh, even right now trying to find the source of the the problem in uh, this little one. And I pray that you'll give them wisdom as well and work together with the doctors, work apart from them in your power and heal Whatever your will is, Lord, we pray that it'll be done. It's our joy uh, to pray for this. It's our, also our hope that uh, you'll deliver him from this sickness uh, and not put sorrow upon sorrow upon the parents. But, Lord, we know that your will is to be done and that you are sovereign in all things, and we trust you. So we pray for his delivery. We pray for the peace of that family, and we thank you that we can even be drawn back this, uh, this day as we think about it, as we depart. The surgery is long, and I pray that you bring us back to this uh, throne to remember Preston again as he goes through this day, and we give you praise today in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. like you, if you would, to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll also be in Revelation chapter 19, so you can uh, be there, and uh, you can have your, maybe a bookmark there, if you would, and then there'll be a couple other places today where we'll be. It has been a uh, joy to be in this study. It's been a joy to fill in this study, as Paul has really uh, done for us an overview of all that's going to take place with death, where death started, what's happened along the way, and what's going to happen at the end. And we're sending a portion here of Paul's letter, if you really think about it, to the Corinthian church that has allowed some of us to see, maybe for the first time, or perhaps a review of the authority Jesus has been given as a result of his resurrection. This small sampling, of course, is just a little bit of the authority that Jesus has been given because of his bodily resurrection. So um, the whole chapter really keys on the foundational nature of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. So it's, it's great to be in this section of Scripture, of course, as we head in to uh, the Easter season, as we think about next Sunday, and which is Palm Sunday, we think about that, we think about uh, Resurrection Sunday, and all that has occurred as a result, and the authority that's been given to Jesus as a result of that resurrection. As we started this study back in verses 1 through 11, we saw resurrection reality, and we went through the good news. What is the good news? What's the gospel? And that Paul's emphasis on the tomb being empty and those who have seen Jesus alive uh, and all of those things. And so it's been a joy to really refresh our hearts and all that we believe, which was so firmly established there uh, right after the resurrection. And then we saw the resurrection hope, which is our deliverance from our sins, verses 12 through 20. And today we're going to finish up resurrection authority, which is the resurrection authority over death. And of course, the reestablishing of uh, God's authority on earth now. If you would, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and we'll read all the way through verse 28, which really is the end of the section that we've been examining. Of course, these sections are broken up because that seems to be the sense that Paul has given us. They overlap each other, as Paul's writings uh, often do, and so we'll see some things revisited, things that are very important Paul repeats, 
uh, because he wants us to know how important they are. So look at verse 24. We'll read all the way through verse 28. Then comes the end. That's where we are. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Let's stop right there. Now, the first thing that we saw that Jesus has authority here and because of his resurrection, authority over life and death. Verse 23 says, but each in its own order. Remember, Christ is going to raise everyone back to life. Anyone who has perished will be raised back to life. Some for glory, some for punishment. But each in its own order. Then it says, Christ, look at verse 23, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ said it's coming. So Paul lists the order in which death is brought under Jesus' authority. First, Jesus. Second, those who are Christ says is appearing. And we looked at all that. We won't go back through it again. And then Paul is carried along to give the third stop in this order. And that is, he says, then the end. And we can see that this is just a progression of events, which is moving towards an ultimate conclusion. And that word end is the noun telos, the conclusion or the goal. Jesus went to the cross then, in your mind, you can understand this, and rose from the grave to finally come to this ending. So there's a sense of purpose about it. It points to the consummation of all things, the climax to which everything is destined to lead up to. So what is Jesus going to do in this third step? Okay, look at verse 23 again. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. That's the Greek verb peridito, present active subjunctive, which we saw just means there's a contingency at work here, some things that have to happen for the kingdom to be handed back to the Father. And we see that the handing over the kingdom is the wrapping up of everything, especially death, in order to give the rule of the kingdom back to God. And the first thing he's going to wrap up is the usurping power and rule and authority that are currently in control on the earth. And we looked at this last time, so we'll just read through it this time. It says, when he has abolished, see where we are, all rule and all authority and all power. So, the end will come when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God, and he's going to hand over the rule of the kingdom to God, when he has put everything right. And Jesus is going to render some things powerless. And because of the resurrection, Jesus has this authority to put all things right on the earth. And I think that as we begin to grasp the scope of what it means to put all things under authority, we begin to, begin to understand the power of the resurrection. As you just think about the world that's around us right now, and think about the authorities that are in place. And of course, through the ages, that's have, those things have changed. But all those authorities and all those laws and everything that's been handed down and all the traditions of men and everybody's in any place of authority, all those things rendered powerless, all because of the resurrection, which is why Paul puts the premium on the understanding. This is imperative that people understand and believe and teach, which is where the Corinthians were having trouble, that Jesus' bodily resurrection actually occurred. And so... Jesus is going to render some things powerless, and because of his resurrection, he has the authority to put things right on the earth. And this makes sense. Why is that? Well, because these are the things that oppose God and his rule. They have been against God. They're part of the world system. This is the system of the spiritually dead, the system of man. They have dominated the earth to a greater and greater extent since sin entered the world. So through Christ's death and his resurrection, he was granted all authority, and beginning with his catching away of the church, he will... The word is abolished, but that just means render powerless all the wicked forces at work on the world. Now look at verse 25. It says it this way. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So that speaks of a future physical reign of Christ. Just like he was resurrected bodily and ascended to the Father, he's going to return. And on his parousia, that's the, the word scripture uses, when he begins to return in his presence, all these things are going to be put right. He's going to reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. So how long will that reign be? And we saw this last time, and it appears from passages that supplement Paul's statement here, Christ's reign to subdue his enemies begins at the rapture and continues to the end of his millennial reign. Now, Revelation 19, and I want you to hold your finger where you are now and turn to Revelation 19. This is another place that illustrates and illuminates this passage for us. So I want to look at it briefly, and then we'll conclude our section here in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 
or Revelation 19, if you will. We're going to be- begin right in verse 1, and I'll give you the background. If you've, been, if you've been with us for a while, you went through this passage with us back when we studied Revelation on Sunday evening. So this is a crazy place that really illuminates the passage for us. And this passage really picks up right before Jesus comes back at the close of the tribulation period. Otherwise known as his what? When he comes back at the close of tribulation, that's otherwise known as the glorious appearing of Christ. Okay? Now, Revelation 18, just to give you some some, uh, context here, closes with the great city of Babylon. That's going to be established during the tribulation period, being destroyed. And the infrastructure really, and that's what you can think about, is it gives kind of the details of that destruction. Realize that's really the infrastructure of the system of man is destroyed too. So when Babylon is destroyed, it really... Uh, points to the whole infrastructure of all the system of man being destroyed. And when that happens, heaven reacts to this final part of this last bold judgment, because this is at the end of the last judgment, and, and realize, and this is just a footnote, that those in heaven reacting will include you if you've been born again. So you're going to be reacting to this. John gives us this understanding as the Holy Spirit carries him along. You will have been raptured, you'll be, have been with Christ in heaven to this point, and heaven reacts, because the enemies of God, now get this, this is how it ties back to our verse, the enemies of God, and all those who have raised themselves up in defiance, and the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and the false church, which just exemplify really to the greatest degree what's been going on since the fall. In other words, what goes on in the world, worldwide during the tribulation is what has been happening on the earth in isolated kingdoms since the fall. Do you get that? So what you have in the tribulation period with the Antichrist, you just have worldwide what's already been going on in isolated kingdoms since the fall, okay? Little petty rulers and tyrants, and, you know, you see them now, you know, Iran and, you know, North Korea and all, all that stuff. You see little, little kind of microcosm of what's going to be the case during the tribulation period, which is just illustrating exactly the, the rebellion of man, see? The false prophet personifies heretical teaching. The Antichrist personifies rebellion. So you actually have men in place that are really personifying what's been the case all along, all throughout the world. Now it's a worldwide system. And it's going to run to the end that heaven will allow it to run. So that's what's, that's what's going on here. Okay, so the world's finally going to get what it's always wanted. A, a, a moralless, lawless, hedonistic, humanistic kingdom without the Christians who mess everything up. So see, it shouldn't surprise you that, that the world system wants Christians out of its system. Okay? They don't want your involvement. They don't want, they don't want Christian attorneys helping enforce the law. They don't, they don't want Christian businessmen doing business like they should. They don't want Christian businessmen saying, okay, we're, we're not going to do this because this is immoral. We're not going to fund abortion. This is immoral. They all, the world gets what it's wanted all along. It gets a moralless, lawless system without any Christians in it initially. That's what it gets. So that's your system in the tribulation period. So it just illustrates what's always been going on, and now you get it worldwide, okay? So that's kind of the picture. If you look at Revelation, you realize that's what's actually happening. So Babylon falls, and the infrastructure of the system of man is completely rendered powerless. So Jesus is doing exactly what Paul says he's going to do. And so the enemies of God are being rendered powerless, and heaven is glad. And you're glad, even now, to know that that's the case. This is as sure as anything you know in your life. This is a set date in the future. It's going to happen. Okay? All this foolishness, all this wickedness, all the sorrow that we reading the news brings to us will all be done away. And then the Holy Spirit carries John along to write this. Look at Revelation 19.1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Now that word, after these things, metahutos, uh, timestamp, we've seen this a number of times, okay? It just tells us these things are following in order. So after what? After the seal and the trumpet and the bold judgments are completed, after Babylon is completely destroyed, because we just saw that in the end of chapter 18 of Revelation, but before, now this is the beginning of the consummation of all things, before the battle of Armageddon, before the glorious appearing of Christ, before the setting up of the millennial kingdom. Why? Babylon is destroyed. It's thrown down. So we have, after these things, Babylon's thrown down. The kingdom of men is rendered powerless. All the infrastructure is coming to an end. So it's this transition from the tribulation to the millennial kingdom. 
and heaven and believers are excited. So that's where we are in Revelation 19. It's this transition time, the exact time Paul says Christ will rule until he's all, brought his, all his enemies into subjection. He's rendered them powerless. Christ, Christ is going to rule until that happens. This is part of that immediate rule with his presence on earth. Okay? Now, they say something. Let's look at what they say. Revelation 19.1. Saying, and I love, I love this, okay, that they, they say this. This is such a marvelous thing to read. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? Verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous, and he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, speaking of Babylon, the world system, things that have always been in place, always corrupting. The world system always does that, doesn't it? Materialism and lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life and all those things that are part of the world system that you and I have to battle all the time. And every time you turn on the television, every time you pop up the internet, it's always there in the margins, in the advertisements, whatever, okay? They're excited. Why? Because that infrastructure has been rendered powerless and cast down. So they say, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. He's held off. And in his grace, he's allowed things to go, but that's the end. He's judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So remember that in, the, in Revelation, there's a whole bunch of people who were killed, and they stand b below the throne of God, and they say, how long do we have to wait till you avenge the blood, our blood, on the earth? And there are plenty of martyrs there now, beloved, okay? Coming out of the Middle East and coming out of Syria and Iraq and all over, okay? Plenty of martyrs there now, plenty of martyrs throughout the, the history of the earth. I think I read that there were more martyrs killed in the last two years than in the previous 500. That's pretty amazing. That's a pretty amazing statistic if you think about it. So, they worship God, we worship God, they're saying these things. Why? Because we worship God by making clear who he is and what he's done. That's what we did earlier today with some music. That's what we did with some scripture reading. We worship God by who he is and what he's done. That's how we worship God, okay? We, we proclaim him. We let him shine through us. We magnify his works, his deeds, his glory, his attributes. That's how we worship. That's what they're doing now because they're watching Christ coming and taking back the authority and putting the enemies under his feet, and they're praising God because of that, and that's what's happening here. There's a whole series of hallelujahs, which just means praise the Lord. It's a transliteration of two Hebrew words. Halal, which means praise, glory, or boast. And the word Yah, which is Jehovah in a shortened form. And that's the proper name for the one true God. And that's where we get our word Lord. When you see your word Lord in all capitals in your Bible, you realize that is that word. Okay, so they're saying hallelujah. Now, in the entire New Testament, beloved, it's only used four times. All right here. Okay, and so... People are excited, heaven's excited, you're excited. If you're born again, you're there, you're saying this, okay? And a second time, verse 3, they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises up, catch this, that's the smoke of the world system, the smoke of Babylon, rises up, how long? What's it say? Is God's word true? Okay, so how long will the smoke rise up from the destruction of the system of man? I think this is a great footnote. Because even in the remaking of the world, which we know is going to happen, even with the new Jerusalem coming down, what will still be the case in some part of the new earth? A reminder of the wickedness of the world system and what occurs as a result of that wickedness. I don't know how the Lord will perform that, but his word's always true. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, and that means forever and ever. Okay? And so there's going to be a reminder of the system of man and its destruction forever, even in the new earth. Now look at verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. So they agree. Now the 24 elders likely represents the church. Uh, that's the words used for those who lead the church. It likely represents the church. They're there. They see what's happening. And what do they say? They say, Amen. We agree. So be it. This is true. Hallelujah. Now look at verse 5. And a voice came up, came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bond slaves, you who fear him, the small and great. So, who's there? Who's in heaven doing this? Well, bond slaves, that's you and me, right? If we understand our relationship to Christ, we're, we're there, right? Those who fear him, that's the character trait of the truly born again, those who fear him. And if you think about your relationship to God, it is based in its foundation on what? On fear, that he has the right to deal with your sin any way he wants. He's sovereign and good, but just 
right? And so he has the right to do that, so you, there's fear there. So that's character traits of the truly born again, bond slaves, uh, those who fear him, and no one else, right? No, no one who just believes God exists, nobody who maybe, you know, worshipped a, a different God, but really, you know, they were really thinking about the true God, nobody who had marginal faith, nobody who was really not impacted by a filter. Nobody else is there, see? It's only, who's there? Only the bond slaves, only those who fear him. Okay, that takes in, that sums up the character trait of all who are saying these words, okay? So heaven's excited because uh, the kingdom rule is being established back on earth and the enemies of God are being rendered powerless. Now look at verse 6. John says this. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. Now that's how he started, okay, verse 1. So he goes back to that because he's isolating some of the praise that's coming out and he's isolating what's been said. And then he, he says, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude. That's verse 1. Like the sound of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. So that's a huge amount of people all speaking and singing at the same time. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty. What's it say? Reigns. What's going on here, beloved, that Paul says is going to happen? Paul says that all the rule and authority and power of the entire man system is going to be brought under subjection and rendered powerless and handed over to God. And what's occurring here? That's exactly what's occurring. And heaven is, heaven is having a joyful time because they see this whole system that brings sorrow to so many millions and millions of people and sorrow to God's own heart. And the result, and because of all that, God had to send his son. That has come to an end. And they are excited about that. The writing's on the wall. Everybody who's left, now there are some people left, we're going to see them in just a minute, right? The Antichrist, false prophet, and these armies that are surrounding Jerusalem here at the end of the tribulation period, they're still left, but they are all what? They are put on notice. The Lord God, the Almighty, he reigns. All of this false temporary world system with all these people who have the wrong names assigned to them, all those names are taken away, given to the right people, okay? This is exciting stuff, and this is what Paul talks about. He sums it up. John lays it out for us, okay? Verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Okay, so just three portions of the relationship. I love this. Okay, again, this kind of tells you what's going on in heaven, what, where, what, you know, uh, what's happening. Jesus picked his bride long ago on the cross, promised himself to her, the church. He told her to be ready, to remain pure. The church was presented to the groom at the rapture. And now the ceremony is taking place with the supper. And so all this stuff is all going on here at the close of the, of the reign, of the temporary reign of those who had no right to be there, but who were there temporarily and reigned wickedly. All this is now coming to a consummation. Verse 8. Now it says this. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you're clothed in fine linen. Okay, if you're part of the church, how do you make sure you're clothed wonderfully for the ceremony? Uh, you make sure that you're born again. You make sure that you are caught away as the bride is caught away. You'll be there. That's your, that's your, that's your arraignment. Now look at verse 9. Then he said, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So who's this? Well, it isn't the church because she's the Bride, okay? I mean, the bride doesn't get invited to the, to the marriage supper, right, of the bride and groom. She obviously is there in a place of honor, which we just saw in verse 8. So, these are people who, and we saw this last week, came to faith before the church. So, Old Testament saints, tribulation martyrs, came to faith during the tribulation. They're about to get their physical bodies, and they get to attend this marriage supper of the Lamb. And then you see in verse, uh, last part of verse 9, John mistakenly worships the angel. He's so excited, he just bows down to the angel, and he's like, whoa, you know, wrong direction, all right? Don't, don't bow to me. Okay, so we sum that up. Now, the last part of verse 10, for the testimony of Jesus, look there in your copy of God's word, uh, Revelation 19, 10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I love that statement, don't you? After he got through falsely worshiping the angel, the angel corrects him, he just says, listen, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, beloved, just kind of take that and go backwards into the scriptures. Everything that was ever said about the kingdom of God, past, present, future, was always really talking about whom? Who was it talking about? It was talking about, look at verse 10. It was talking about Jesus, right? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Everything that was ever said about the kingdom, everything that was ever said about the fulfillment of the kingdom, from the past, the present, the future, always really talking about the reality of Jesus and all he is. And our songs really sum that up today. I love that, just how the Lord orchestrated all of that. 
He's fulfilling all those promises. He is the summation of all the prophecy that occurred. He's taking care of all of that. Everybody's getting ready in heaven. Everyone is receiving clothes to go to the kingdom. All this is the consummation of the marriage. Heaven is all astir. Everybody's looking around excited. The earth is about to see Jesus. Believers from the church age have longed for the earth to see this, the glorious appearing of Christ. This is what a conquering king looks like, okay? This, this is someone who's conquered usurpers, who's reestablishing the rule of law, bringing lawbreakers and those who participated in the rebellion and the coup, bringing them all to justice. The end isn't going to come, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 24, until the enemies of God are dealt with, and Jesus is doing that here, see? He's putting all things in subjection, 1 Corinthians 15, 27. And here he comes. Look at, look at Revelation 19, 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now, once again, Paul mentions nothing about he doesn't mention anything about judgments necessarily that are taking place on thrones. He doesn't talk about any kind of war going on. But we know that that's what's going to happen. We know there's some battles. We know some people are overthrown and thrown different places and chained and all that kind of stuff. Paul just sums it up. He's going to reign. John gives us the, the expanded version. He judges and he wages war. So when he came the first time, he came to a stable. He worked as a carpenter. He rode a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. And then he was spit on, and he was mocked, and he was murdered to fulfill all righteousness. He submitted himself to that murder. And because God raised him to life, he's been given all authority to do this. And so he shows up. Now, just a couple of things to point out. Difference between what we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14, rapture verses, and these verses. Okay, just a couple of highlights here. No judgment then. We're a trumpet. Christ is in the clouds. The bride is caught away. Now... Christ comes in his physical appearing actually on earth. He's going to actually step on the earth, and now we see judgment. Back then, saints rose to meet him. Now, they come with him. They're prepared. They're in raiment. We're going to see in just a minute. They actually are there. He's on a white horse. Now, then, he was in the clouds with a trumpet to raise uh, physical bodies of those who believe. Now, faithful and true, just like he said. He's going to return in power, just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to come and judge, and he's going to throw down all the power and authority and dominion, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And shock of shocks, he's going to judge, and he's going to make war. Okay? No more meek and lowly Jesus. You know, God's love, he'd never divide right from wrong. You know, everything's going to be okay. Everybody's going to be saved in the end, and all that nonsense. Okay? Just toss all of that out. He's coming, and he's going to judge, and he's going to make war. Now, Psalm chapter nine, uh, 7, verse 9 is a great passage. It's, uh, the psalmist really prays and then really establishes God's mind on all of this. And he says this, okay? So we can have the correct mindset, I think, as we think about all of this. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And all God's people said, amen. Okay? Even if it's just one thing, even if it's just abortion, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you obviously want the, the wicked uh, of the evil to come to an end, uh, the evil of the wicked to come to an end. But establish righteousness. See, it's a prayer. Oh let, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and establish righteousness. Do you pray that? If you pray out of Matthew 6, you really are, in essence, praying that. Right? Our Father who's in heaven, your name is holy. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. What, in essence, are you praying? That the evil of the wicked will come to an end and righteousness will be reestablished on the earth. See, you're praying along with the will of the Lord when you pray that. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation. How often? Every day. So forget the cosmic grandpa idea, okay? God has indignation every day. Why? Because wickedness and evil rule temporarily on the earth. And it causes great sorrow to everyone who's here and to God's own heart. The rebellion of the creation. He has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he'll sharpen his sword. And he bent his bow and made it ready. He's also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he, that's men, travails with wickedness. And he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out. And then fallen into the hole that he's made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. 
That's the idea, okay? This is the fulfillment of that. As David prayed for that, as you pray for the kingdom to come, you are really praying for an end to wickedness. And that's joyful and sorrowful, isn't it? It's sorrowful because you and I have loved ones who don't love Christ. And that's horrible to think about, isn't it? I don't even want, I, I hate to even imagine that in my mind, to be, for them to be separated from the Lord forever in eternal death. But that is, that is the case. That is the future. He tries the hearts and minds. He saves those who he calls. It's just an amazing thing that goes on. It's a motivation to be faithful, a faithful witness always, even when they say, I don't want to hear about that anymore, like my relatives say. Please don't talk to me about that ever again. Just be faithful and give it out. You don't, you don't want this end to come, but this is a real end. And Christ coming here that Paul's talking about, he's going to return and reign until all the enemies of God are under his feet. This is the real deal, and Revelation illustrates that for us. And Psalm, Psalm 7, 9 through 16 tells us that's been the understanding of the righteous forever. I mean, since God has established his law, the righteous have understood that this is the case, that the lawgiver will someday call everybody into account. This is the accounting time. Now look back at Revelation chapter 9, verse 12. Verse 11 says, I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And verse 12 says, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So here we have really three indications that he's coming to put his enemies under his feet and bring everything under subjection. He has power, he has authority, and he has a kingdom, and he's coming to rule it. It's not a question about whether or not you want to be ruled by Jesus. It's a question that this is his kingdom, and he plans on setting up his authority here again. He's taking the world back. He is a crown ruler. He's coming to, go, he's, he's coming to claim his right to rule over his enemies and all his usurpers and reestablish law and order on the earth and righteousness. And there's a name written on him that even glorified saints don't know and won't know until that day. So we've, we've heard lots of names of Jesus up until now. There's still another one to be revealed at this time, and that makes sense, doesn't it? And he's wonderful. Now look at verse 13. He's, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now that's not from the last battle, beloved, okay? But from his battle with sin on our behalf. That's symbolic. He has gone to the grave and resurrected. He shed his own blood for the redemption of the world. And all those who have believed are rejoicing with this time, okay? And his name is called the Word of God. Okay, that is his name. That has been his name. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 tell us this. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Why? Because he is the word of God, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's the heir of all things, beloved. He is coming to get his inheritance. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has the right to rule. He's a, God has established that right in Jesus himself, and he will exercise that rule. And there uh, are people with him. Now look at verse 14 of Revelation 19. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. You recognize that apparel? Who does that belong to? That's your apparel. That's my apparel. All the redeemed. The church appears to be here. It doesn't describe the church as having weapons, just a part of the procession as the glorious appearing of Christ occurs on the earth. Scripture says that we, along with Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, will rule with him when the battle is over. And so you see the white apparel on the resurrected bodies of those who are redeemed coming with him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he'll rule until he's put all his enemies under his feet and things are put into subjection. But Paul doesn't talk about battles. He doesn't talk about judgments. John fills the gaps in for us. And we appear to be part of this procession, but Jesus and his angels are going to do the work. He's coming to set up his kingdom on earth. He's taking back the names and the authority and the dominion and the power and he, that rightfully belong to him. He's already thrown down man's system, that system of Babylon. Now he's addressing some individuals and a group of individuals who are there around Jerusalem. And he's coming to Armageddon where the Antichrist and the false prophet are, along with an army made up of those who took the mark and are sealed in their rebellion. The great, Scripture says, and the small, all led by Satan himself and his demons. They remember the last time now, uh, likely, they remember the last time Jesus came to earth, Satan and his demons do. They remember this apparent victory they thought they had accomplished back then. They're ready for the fight, but their time is up. It's time for authority from heaven to be established on earth, and their time is up. 
So he's come to Armageddon in all his glory to establish his throne on the earth in Jerusalem. Now, hold your finger here, turn to Matthew 13. Told you it would be a couple different places. I want you to see all this. These are all interconnected. You can write these in the margin of your Bible in 1 Corinthians 15, which allows you a great scope of teaching next time you bring this up and you're talking about this to other people. You can take them all over the place here and you can see all the things that are going on that actually illustrate for us what it means to abolish all rule, power, and authority and to reign until all the enemies are under his feet. So Matthew 13, verse 37. And Jesus is teaching a parable here and he's giving... Uh, that's explanation of the good seed. And so he says this, verse 37, and he said, this is Jesus, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Verse 38, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. Verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they'll gather out of this kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, verse 42, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Real place of real punishment forever for those who have rejected the salvation that comes through God in Jesus. Verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is super important, Jesus says. Don't miss this. If you've been dozing off all the way up until now, in my teaching time of you, Jesus says, don't doze off now. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, who went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Again, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. Verse 48, and when it is filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down, and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come and forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See. This is not a hidden doctrine. This is clear from the start. Jesus, in his graciousness and his first appearing, came to redeem men from this very fate. And so he's making it very clear. This is indeed going to come. The world won't always be ruled by those who shouldn't be ruling it. It won't always be dominated by wickedness. There's going to come a time that it won't be. And Revelation 14 shows the angel's assistance as well. So this is confirmed all the way through the New Testament. Now, back to Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Flip back over there if you would. So he comes, and armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, we're following him on white horses. And then it says this, for from his mouth, this is Jesus, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. What does that mean, beloved? absolutely firm what his law says will be done no question about it where the age of grace has passed jesus is ruling in his presence on earth and he's going to rule exactly as his word says and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of god the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written king of kings and lord of lords king of kings all the kings who've ever ruled all the presidents all the prime ministers whatever he's over all of them all the ones who falsely uh, attributed themselves as Lord or thought they were a God or whatever it was, he's above them. King of kings, Lord of lords. He's going to judge. He's going to slay men with his word. It's going to have power to take physical life. And I, I kind of imagine it like this. It may not be exactly like this, but you know how the word proclaims men are dead in their sin or alive into Christ? I think that is what, when Jesus comes, it appears that words will actually literally accomplish that slaying. He's come to carry out God's wrath on sin. The time of God's forbearance, his patience, his kindness are over. And the horror of Armageddon is recorded for us again here in verse 17 and following. The battle is joined. The angel makes an announcement. Look at verse 17, Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for a great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. All of these 
are the enemies of God practically gathered in one place in a huge army, marching on Jerusalem, of course. And he proclaims that God will be victorious even before the battle begins. The angel just stands up there where the noon sun is and just says, hey, come and feast. It's going to be this huge slaughter and the birds are going to have their fill. It's before the battle even starts. The end is already proclaimed. Why? Because it's all done. All rule, all authority, all the enemies of God, all thrown down, see? Because even though the Antichrist and the false prophet and the kings of the earth think it's going to be a battle, other than the fighting that's going on in Jerusalem right before Jesus comes, they really won't be able to resist Jesus. And really, bringing the world into authority, listen, beloved, this is hard to say, okay? But bringing the world into authority, under Jesus' authority, bringing the world and the enemies and subduing them and bringing them powerless, really is carrying out a death sentence to all those who oppose God and his Christ. And I don't think that's a secret, but I think it's important to say, okay? Because this is the end of all those who reject Christ. This, this is not even a question. All those who oppose God and his Christ, and this is bringing them into subjection. And this has to happen, see? These are his enemies. He's going to bring them into subjection and bring their authority to nothing. It was temporary, and now it's over. And it will include, verse 18 says, all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Ezekiel 9, uh, 39, 17 talks about this day. As the Lord is speaking through the prophet, he spoke about this day. He didn't know when it was going to happen, but we can be sure that he knew it would happen. Because doesn't First Peter tell us that, you know, the prophets of old spoke, and they didn't even for sure know what age they were speaking about. But they knew it was going to happen. As for you, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every beast of the field, assemble and come to gather from every side of my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as the great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. It's a severe day. Matthew 24, 27, while the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus, thinking they're going to bring him into subjection, Jesus tells his disciples about a day when he will return and render all the enemies of God powerless. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west. Now, it didn't look like that was going to be the case at this point in Jesus' ministry. Everything's looking bad for Jesus, okay? And he is submitting himself to death on the cross, and it appears that, that Satan and his demons are going to be victorious, and wicked men are going to murder Jesus. And Jesus just says this, okay? Listen, as just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever their corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is going to happen. I'm submitting myself to this so that I can have authority over all things. God is going to give him that authority. Now look back at Revelation 19, 19. And I saw, John says, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So they're surrounding Jerusalem. And if, if you were with us through the Revelation study, you know that was the intent. Then they see Jesus coming on the white horse and they see the host of heaven. You are with them coming. So now their focus is on whom? Oh, upon this king on a white horse. We're going to slay him. That's going to be it. We're taking back the earth and that's it. The earth is going to belong, they, uh, the false prophet and, and the Antichrist think, to them. But here's what you need to realize when you read the verse, see. They don't want to give up their temporary authority. And, and think about it. I saw the beast and the, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. People would do this now. I mean, think about our culture, okay? <laughs> I mean, if Jesus came and said, okay, I'm establishing my kingdom, do you think that there would be people who would war against it? Oh, yeah. Much worse than it's ever been, right? I mean, there's always been a, a, a fraction of our society that would make war against Jesus, okay? But it's a huge portion of our society now. I mean, right? I mean, they hate the servant. I mean, you, you can't stand up in any secular university and proclaim uh, what uh, Ben Shapiro does, right, without having death threats. You can't establish truth anywhere and not be in trouble. I mean, do you think it wouldn't be the case now? I mean, it's certainly the, the temper of the world now. Oh, here comes, oh, he's not taking over. No way. So, I mean, it, this is not hard to imagine. So they focus on Jesus. Because men have deluded themselves throughout the ages thinking there would never be an accounting, see, that the usurper was the real king. Demons have deceived men. Men have exalted their own philosophies to the point that they have believed them. See? Now, this day has been predicted so many times by so many of the writers of Scripture. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in Isaiah. We saw it in Ezekiel, Joel, Matthew, the Apostle Paul. Jesus himself taught about this day and, and, all the, and the days following this day when he will judge all those who don't believe. In Matthew 25, verse 31. Now, let's see what happens to the two guys 
who spent the last seven years recorded for us here in Revelation, boasting about their strength, their power, their authority, and how they're in charge of everything. We're talking about the Antichrist and the false prophet, and, and giving themselves names that didn't belong to them. Look at verse 20 of Revelation 19. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. So first of all, as Jesus is establishing the authority that rightfully belongs to him, as he's bringing all rule and power and authority under subjection and bringing them powerless and all the enemies of God under his feet, the first two who are nabbed as Jesus comes into this melee that uh, the Antichrist and, and the false prophet and all the armies of the earth have, have started, they're grabbed. And he puts them alive into the lake of fire. And he's putting all authority under his feet. He's bringing everything into subjection. And they lead the way, beloved, for millions of people who refuse to believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness through his name. They're just the beginning of those who are going to be tossed into the lake of fire, the second death forever. Okay? And we're going to see them again. A thousand years later, still there in torment, as they are joined by all of humanity who died apart from salvation. And we looked at that last week, remember, at the end of chapter 20. That he wraps up Hades and death, and he throws all that into the lake of fire. So all of those who were resurrected for the second resurrection, the one you don't want to be part of, they're all tossed in there with these two, but they lead the way. That all who have ever lived, who've died apart from salvation, will be raised at the second resurrection and they will be judged and cast there for torment as their final destination with a body prepared for eternity. That's a very, very severe day. Matthew 13, 40 says this, So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and, and he will throw them into the furnace of fire into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 43 and here Jesus is teaching about sin. Now he's not talking about going and just amputating everything. He's talking about the severity of sin. So he says this, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than have your two hands to go into hell, into unquenchable fire. And then he says this, a real place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, they're going to live forever there, okay? Not even the parasite that would inhabit their glorified body, which there won't be any, would perish. Nothing's going to perish. They're going to be there forever. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet and be cast into hell. Again, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A real place for real people who rejected salvation. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Is Jesus serious about this? Sure he is. Does he want to make sure they understand the severity of sin? And this practice of sin, this habitual sin of rebellion against the Lord, which leads to this place untreated. Luke 3.17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so verse 20 is very clear, beloved, in Revelation 19. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he de deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now verse 21, Revelation 19. And the rest were killed with a sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is not even a battle. They think it's going to be a battle. It's not. Jesus is coming to put all enemies under his feet and bring to an end all authority and power. And that's exactly what he's going to do. All those who are part of the army will be killed. They are the part of the enemies of God. That is the winepress of the fierceness of God's wrath. Revelation 14.20 speaks about the same time period. The winepress was trodden outside the city. The blood came up from the winepress to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. This is a, this is a tremendous judgment. Very severe. The Lord and his angels will judge men. The outcome will be, at the same time, will be both right and terrible. A joyous time and a horrible time. And with this verse, really, in Revelation, we reach the end of the tribulation period. And we referenced this a little bit already. But Jesus is teaching from Matthew 25. And I'd like you to turn there. And this is the last place we'll be. And we're going to wrap up. Turn to Matthew 25. 
This is the end of the tribulation period. And Jesus teaches in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, fits right here. So I want you to see it because it is part of, really, I think, a, 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 a complete teaching of putting all enemies under his feet and establishing all rule and authority and power that's true and throwing down all the false rule, authority, and power and rendering it powerless. So it fills out Paul's teaching from 1 Corinthians 15, Matthew 25, 31. This is the judgment we talked about just in passing of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of the nations. So you have this huge army around Jerusalem. Christ comes on a white horse with the church, with the saints. They're all dressed in white. The angels and, and Christ himself do this judging. And this army is slaughtered, and the, and the blood runs high, and it's a severe day. But the world is still filled with people, is it not? I mean, we understand at the end of tribulation that only a quarter of the ones who were on the earth at the beginning of the tribulation still remain, but that's still a lot of people in all places of the earth, okay? So people are living, they weren't part of the army, but they're living in all, all over the earth, and there are redeemed people living there and unredeemed. There are enemies of God there, and there are redeemed people, okay? Now this makes sense, doesn't it? The world's a big place. Not everybody's coming to Jerusalem to fight, and so this is a very severe battle. Christ is here in Jerusalem. He's establishing his kingdom, and then there's going to be a judgment because there's people all over the world, and some have believed Christ during the tribulation, and some have not. And so got to, they've got to deal with that. Christ has to deal with that. If he's putting all enemies of God under his feet, and if he's bringing into the subjection all rule and authority and power, then there has to be some kind of judgment. It's called the judgment of the sheep and goats or the judgment of nations. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 talks about it. And for time's sake, we'll read it. I'll comment on it briefly. We're going to wrap up, okay? So look at Matthew 25, 31. It says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so what time is this? The glorious appearing of I lost you. You're off somewhere. The glorious appearing Christ. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Has he come in his glory yet? No. We're an occupying force here, right? We're, we're strangers and aliens in a strange land. We're we've been given a commission and we're supposed to go out and, and we're supposed to, to uh, establish the kingdom in the hearts of men by giving the gospel, right? But he's not come in his glorious appearing yet, so this is still future. And it goes right along with what we just saw, right? So when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so now we know the timestamp. This is when it's going to happen. And all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. So that time period, the glorious appearing of Christ, the end of the seven-year tribulation, he's going to sit on his glorious throne. Verse, look at verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. So you can imagine this is going to take some time, won't it? The traveling and all the stuff that's going to happen, but all the nations are going to be gathered before him. And he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There's where you get, the, there's where you get in general, the judgment of sheep and goats or the judgment of nations, Okay. And these appear to be those who are alive at his coming. So he judged this great battle that was about to go on in Jerusalem, and he's established himself, and now the rest of the world is going to be brought into subjection. Okay? So this is, the, this is that time period. Very important that Jesus taught on this. Verse 33. And he will put the sheep on his right. Now, who do you think those are? Well, sheep have always referred to what? Those who are believers. These are people who've come to faith, perhaps as a result of the 144,000 witnesses, perhaps as a result of the two witnesses in Jerusalem. It's hard to say. People who were witnessed to maybe before the rapture occurred and then have seen all that's occurred and have bowed their knee and submitted to Christ and come to faith. Okay, God is good that way. During the tribulation, hundreds of millions of people, that exactly is what's going to occur. So he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And that would indicate those who have not come to faith in Christ. And that's a very consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Now, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Verse 36, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, let's just clarify something before we finish it. Salvation is never an act of repayment, is it? So they don't receive salvation because they did that, Correct. It's not, salvation is never a result of deeds done earning salvation, so that couldn't be the case here. It is the gracious act of God made available because of Christ's sacrifice, okay? But salvation always produces what? Fruit, good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them, okay? It always produces fruit, the fruit of good deeds. And that is exactly what Christ is pointing out. The fruit of these good deeds is, is indicating that these are those who have been born again. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? You personally. Lord Jesus, when did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in and naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer. The king, 
Why? Because he has thrown down all rule and authority and power, and he is reigning because that is his position. Okay? So this is not even a question. The king is there, and everybody knows what his name is. Okay? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the, these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it unto me. You exhibited the fruit of salvation in what you did, even though it wasn't to me personally, it was to those who believed in me. Then he will also say to those on his left, now who's that? Those who are still in the world, alive at Christ's coming, but did not receive salvation, did not listen to the, the witnesses, did not listen to the two in Jerusalem. They rejected, they were part of the rebellion, they're part of God's enemies, okay? Say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, because if you haven't come to faith, the curse is still on you, isn't it? You've never been free of it. You're already dead, spiritually dead, physical death is ahead, and for these folks, eternal death is right ahead. He'll say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So condemnation, again, just to clarify, is a result not of not receiving the gracious gift of salvation provided through Christ's sacrifice. Men are dead in their sin from birth, right? Spiritually dead and produce the fruit of unrighteousness that indicates their condition. Correct? So that's always how it is. You have the sin principle, you have the death principle. This is how it is. This is the fruit of those who are spiritually dead. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. And I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, these are the enemies of God. What's his name? It's Lord. He's in charge. See, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is to the glory of God the Father. Everybody. doesn't matter who they are. Okay? These are those who are alive at Christ's coming but not redeemed. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that fits right there at the end of chapter 19 of Revelation. It fits right there in 1 Corinthians 15, really verses 26, 27, and 28. And all the wicked will be held there until the great white throne judgment we saw last week which is the second resurrection, the one you don't want to participate in, and the righteous will enter the millennial reign of Christ alive. Okay? And that makes sense because they are going to come in alive, they're going to produce children, they're going to live to a long, uh, uh, ripe old age. Isaiah says, uh, you know, if, if one dies before the age of 100, that they, they had, had been a sinner, we, where they were determined to be cursed. So we know that life is going to be extended, we know there's going to be a large population expansion, and I've given you a lot of that stuff in the past, so I won't go through it again. But they will enter the millennial Christ of reign, reign of Christ without dying, and it appears that they will receive their glorified bodies when they die in this kingdom. For they will produce offspring in the thousand-year reign of Christ. So they die in this kingdom, they'll receive their glorified bodies. But until that time, they'll live like they've lived. And there's some rules for that kingdom, and we won't go through all of that, about coming and, and participating in the, in the, in the, uh, in the days, the, the high days that Jerusalem and, and the Jews used to participate in. So there's a lot of rules for the world, and you have to travel and do all these things, so it's really cool stuff. So... Revelation 20 gives us some details about that reign, and Christ is reigning until he's put all his enemies under his feet, and when John gets to the end of chapter 20, and Satan's thrown into the lake of fire, and joins the false prophet and the Antichrist, and then all the unbelieving world is judged, and they're thrown into the lake of fire, then Revelation 20, verse 14, says this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so, as we let the Bible explain the Bible, we see Paul's words expanded. And Paul closes out, our section of the resurrection authority, 1 Corinthians 15, 26-28, he says the last enemy, verse 26, that will be abolished is what? Death. And so that goes together, doesn't it? That's very, that's, it just meshes well with us. We understand what's going on. It makes it clear when the time frame is. And once the tribulation starts, Revelation tells us it will proceed in time, just like it's supposed to. In a short uh, amount of time, this establishment of, of Christ's throne on the earth, his bringing all rule, authority, and power under subjection, and his uh, handing over the world to the Lord, all put in order, is precisely what's going to occur. He's judged it all. He, he carried out the sentence. Death as a principle no longer has any authority. And the sin principle that brought about death to all men has been exhausted. It'll no longer be in the line of humanity anymore. And, and the righteous will receive their glorified bodies, and the unrighteous will receive the bodies prepared for eternity, and eternal death will run its course on them. And verse 27 says of, of 1 Corinthians 15, 
for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And here the subject appears to be God the Father. He has put, aorist active indicative, a single once for all act of subjection. God the Father has given Jesus this authority. Now this is something we've affirmed all the way through, so it's not surprising to us. And then are put in sub into subjection, same word except now perfect passive indicative. There's a permanent state of subjection. So God has given it to, to Christ, and it's a permanent state of subjection. The idea here is that God the Father has given the Son unlimited sovereignty over all of creation. And we've looked at that in a number of verses, so we don't have to go back there and do it again. It's evident, it says, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This, of course, doesn't involve any infringement on the Father's own sovereignty. So Jesus is in charge of everything, and the Father is over all, okay? And then Paul drives the point home as we think about the resurrection authority that Jesus has been given in verse 28. It says this, when all things are subjected to him, that's Jesus, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Now, Paul isn't saying that one member of the Trinity is not co-equal with the others. He's simply saying this, okay? He's speaking of the work that Christ has accomplished and will accomplish. He's died for us. He's risen. He will return. He'll subdue all the enemies of God. So resurrection authority principle number 13 is the last one in your notes. The culmination of this whole work will come when Christ presents the kingdom to him who is the source of it all. And Paul sums that up, and we've seen that played out at length in Revelation and, and in Matthew. He submitted to the will of the Father, and he became a man. He submitted to the will of the Father and set aside some of his privileges and his glory. And he became a man and humbled himself and took upon himself the Father's wrath for the sin of humanity. All things were made for the glory of the Father. All things have been reconciled for the glory of the Father. And Christ returns all things to the glory of the Father. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Christ has done exactly what the Father has laid upon him to do. And Revelation 22, 17 says this. The Spirit and the Bride say what? Come. Come and let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's for you. All this is true. Christ will come and do everything he said he's going to do. And that's the heart of God right there. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let, those, let the one who hears say, come. Are you saying come? Are you taking the opportunity that you have to say to somebody else who doesn't know, give them the gospel, come. Come, this is for you. Prepared for eternity. Without cost. Christ paid it on the cross. He rose again and showed he was, had authority over death. Come. Take the water of life without any cost. Because there is a price to pay if you don't. But come, this is, he established this for you to reestablish your relationship to God as it's supposed to be. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you that we still live in a time where the spirit and the bride say, come. Because there will, become a there will come a time when the spirit and the bride won't be able to say that anymore. We won't be able to say that. The Spirit won't be able to say it because Christ will have established his rule on earth. And all that will be done. But right now, we live in this time. Help us to find our motivation in this marvelous thought that we have been prepared for a kingdom that lasts forever. That the world and everything in it is passing away. Help us not to be caught up in this kingdom. Neither in its education or in its material wealth or in its power or its, or its position or whatever. Help us not to be caught up. We have to live here. Matthew 6 says we have to provide for the needs of our family. You understand that. But seek first your kingdom and your glory, and all these things will be added to you. Lord, help us that to, that to be the overriding factor in everything we do and how we spend our time. And there are those who sit here today, and you've heard this, and you're afraid. You should be. To mock this day would be the most foolish thing you could possibly do because everything that some of the very passages that talk about Jesus' first coming also talk about his second one. And all those first coming things have all been fulfilled. Now the second one's still outstanding. Come. The Holy Spirit says come. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. If you've done that, if you did that today, if you did that last week, take that card from the chair in front of you. 
indicate that. Give that to me when you leave. Let me pray for you and be a joy to get to know you and help you walk, learn how to walk with the Lord and, and really find the fulfillment in the life that he's designed for you and that was supposed to be yours from the start. Ruined by sin, confirmed by your own sin nature, but he can deliver you from all of that. You can be saved. What a joy. We thank you today, Father, for the joy in your word. We thank you for both the heartache and the joy it gives us to read about these things. Thank you that Paul is very clear that this resurrection of Christ is really the source of all the authority that extends to all these things. And much more we haven't even mentioned. It will bring, under, bring brought under subjection to Christ, who will then subject himself and everything there to God, having accomplished all that God has sent him to do. We, we rejoice in those thoughts and in all those things we see. Even so, Jesus, come quickly. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.